0: Our text this morning, as we hear from the living God and his word, is Romans chapter 6, verses 1 to 14. It is the octave day of Easter. So for this week, we're continuing now with an explicit focus on the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ in terms of our sermon content before we return to our series in Second Samuel next Sunday. But this morning, we're also anticipating the celebration of baptisms this afternoon. And so with both of those emphases coming together on this Lord's Day, we could do no better, I don't think, than to consider this brief section of Paul's letter to the Romans. Now, last week, if you recall, if you were here, along with our study of Mark's gospel account of the resurrection morning, we considered briefly the proposition that we cannot separate the cross from the resurrection any more than we can separate the resurrection from the cross. We said, if you remember that without the resurrection, the cross would mean nothing. We would still be in our sins, as Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. But we also said that the converse is true, that because of the resurrection, the cross means everything. Well, this morning then, we turn now to the implications of the cross and the Resurrection, because both have implications for our lives as Christians. And again, I cannot think of a better text to see this than what we have before us this morning in Romans 6. I will say, parenthetically, I didn't say in the first service, Romans isn't Samuel. So we're going to be thinking in ways we haven't thought for a while in terms of working through sermons. So hang in there and wrestle with me, and you'll see where we're coming to in the end, I trust, if if you track with me. The structure of verses 1 to 14 of Romans 6 overall isn't very complicated. If you have your Bible there in front of you, which I hope you will keep there just so you can look at what we're doing... You see in verse 1 of Romans 6 the controlling question for these verses. Paul says, Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul then provides a quick answer to that question in verse 2. We'll talk about it in a minute. But that quick answer in verse 2 is anticipating perhaps what you could say is the fuller answer to the question that comes all the way down in verse 11. Again, verse 1 says, are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Paul quickly says, by no means, in verse 2. But the full explanation for that negative answer is provided in verse 11. No, we're not to continue in sin. Why not? Verse 11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So, as you might expect then, between verse 2 and verse 11 come the reasons for this answer. And then, finally, having answered the question that he started with and developing the reasons for that answer, in verses 12 to 14, the end of the text, Paul then turns and instructs the Romans how to not continue in sin. So, it's Really, just question, answer, application, or instruction. Not that the question and answer are simple, but the structure itself is, I think, easy to see. Our sermon will follow this, these steps through the text, and we'll see then how baptism and resurrection are the controlling ideas in what Paul has to say on this subject And Christian, I know that there's an immense amount to be taken in in these 14 verses. But let me just point out that in the end, Paul's intent is to be intensely practical. This all has to do with how we deal with sin in our lives. So stay with me. It has a pastoral end to where we're going. We have to take seriously that for Paul, it was important to develop the reasons for his answer in some detail before exhorting the Romans with regard to sin in their lives. If you and I are to be victorious over sin, it will only be as a result of understanding the significance of the cross and resurrection for our lives. Does that make sense? all the practical wisdom in the world I could give you regarding how to deal with specific issues of sin in your life won't matter if we don't understand what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. What he has done for us in Jesus, what therefore he is doing for us in Jesus, which is going to be where baptism will come in since Paul says that baptism is the way by which we can begin to grasp the reality of what God is doing in our lives. So that's the, that's the layout of what we're trying. I'm not going to say much about the context of Romans for the purposes of this sermon, but if you would look in your Bibles there, just go back into chapter 5 so that you can at least see where Paul's thought is moving as we run into chapter 6. Look back. I'm just going to pick a few verses. Chapter 5, verse 12. Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all people because all sinned. That's on the one side. Then jump to verse 15, where Paul says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Now jump to verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so you see how in chapter 5, without getting into too much detail, Paul is, is placing all of humanity now between these figures of Adam and Christ. Adam, who stands as the head of the realm of sin, of death, of condemnation, while Christ stands as the head of a new humanity, by way of his obedience and life and grace and righteousness. The end of it then is in verse 21 in chapter 5 where we read, So that as sin reigned in death, grace might also reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So here's the deal coming into chapter 6. The main idea I want you to hear is is that according to Paul, there are two options for what it is that reigns in your life. Either sin reigns in your life. Or grace reigns in your life. If sin reigns in your life, Paul is clear here, but also elsewhere. The end result is death. If grace reigns in your life, the end result is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. If you're a Christian, the Apostle Paul thinks it is of the utmost importance that you realize whose jurisdiction you're under. Right? To whom do you belong? Do you belong to Christ or do you belong to Adam? Does grace reign in your life or does sin reign in your life? That's where we are now as we come into chapter 6. Paul is like, it's like the big blinking arrow on the map in the mole. You are here, Christian. You are under grace by Christ, not under sin by Adam. And that's going to mean something about how you live, Paul says. Well, so here comes the question in verse 1. Having just mapped out this distinction between sin and grace, Paul knows his readers might be thinking, verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Or maybe I could ask it another way. If I'm under grace, Paul, what's the big deal about sin in my life anyway? Why not, if this gospel of grace you've been writing about is true, why not continue in sin, since then grace will just be all the greater? Now, I don't know how you respond to that question. I wonder if that question even makes sense to you. I think how you respond to it, how you even think about it, depends on whether or not you probably already do grasp something of what Paul is going to go on to say here. Because in Paul's mind, that question's absurd. It's. It'd be like asking whether you should remain stuck at the bottom of a well even while there's a rope that's been lowered down to you. Grace is designed to get us out of that situation, not make us feel more comfortable within it. Right? Makes sense? So, of course, Paul answers his question emphatically in verse 2. By no means, he says. How... Can we who died to sin still live in it? Which is a rhetorical question, you understand, because the answer is you can't. You can't, actually. The point is that that's a logical impossibility, not an impossibility that you will sin at all, mind you. Paul's dealing with that but an impossibility that you will continue in it, in sin, as a way of life. You can't go on living in sin, according to Paul. Why not? Because Paul says we died to sin as Christians. If grace is a reality in our lives, it means we have died to sin. In other words, for believers, sin is no longer the reigning force, if you will. It's no longer their your state. Sin is no longer your master. Paul claims that believers cannot remain in sin. Why? Because one of the most distinguishing features of believers is that they've died to sin. Okay. So then comes the key question I always like to ask. What on earth does that mean? What? To say that we have died to sin. Well, it's not so easy to answer, but for starters, observe, at least, that the result of this dying to sin is that we cannot still live in it. There has been some kind of transfer that's happened in some way. If you're a Christian, you've died in some way, and yet you now live and you live somewhere else. You no longer live in sin land, if I can put it that way. Rather, of course, where do you live? <laughs> you live in Graceland, <laughs> with apologies to Paul Simon for that. All right. We're going to talk more about this a little later in the sermon, what this means, how this happens. But here, 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 Paul's question is immediately answered. He can't, Wait for the answer. Are we to continue in sin? No. Why not? Well, for starters, because you can't. Why can't you? Because you, Christian, you died to sin. Okay, to which then maybe you say, really, Paul, how'd that that's what takes us then right into verses 3 through 10 of our chapter well i'm going to try and get there and and i'm going to say a lot to try and get to what i want us to see but just have to start somewhere paul's answer essentially is that that happened you died to sin because somehow christian you died with christ this begins to get more puzzling not less at first What's even more, not only did you die with Christ in some way, you no longer live in sin because somehow you also live with Christ. Not physically, of course. You didn't actually physically die with Christ somehow to pay the penalty for your own sin. That's what Jesus did for you. You didn't physically somehow rise with Christ. Christ was raised for you, as we saw briefly last week at the end of Romans 4. Raised for our justification, it says. But Paul's point somehow is that when you believed that, when you had faith, remember chapter 4 of Romans, all about faith. Chapter 5, then, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace. With God, Paul's on this subject. of, For when you had faith, when you evidenced in your life a trust in the cross and resurrection as the means of forgiveness and new life, when you became a follower of Jesus Christ, or if I may put it this way, when you were converted and were baptized, something mysterious and amazing happened you entered into Christ's death and resurrection. Look at Paul's language in verse 3. Do you not know? That's just another way of saying um, you know this. (laughs) Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, This is a controversial point that I'm not going to elaborate on, but some of you may sense the controversy here. I think when Paul says, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus, I think Paul means by that not only the moment of water baptism itself, though of course that's included, but... He means by that the entirety of our conversion and our initiation. Baptism is the sign and seal of faith, right? So we're talking about the whole thing here, the whole reality that the water baptism represents, I think, though lots of people disagree with the technicalities about how to talk about that in this verse. That's where I'm at. Paul goes on, all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death. You became a Christian, which includes the act of baptism, you're baptized into his death. Verse 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Maybe you're saying this isn't getting any clearer yet. All of this starts to run really deep, doesn't it? Keep this in mind. Keep in mind what Paul's trying to do in these these verses in Romans is to get us to the practical question of sin in our lives. But Paul says, you want to defeat sin in your life, Christian? Remember this. Remember that for the Christian, there is a parallel between Christ's death and resurrection and our own very lives. And again, it's obviously not that we physically have died and physically have been raised, or at least it's not yet that. That's going to be the case one day. But it's not the physical reality yet, but as I understand this chapter, and I say to you this morning, it is a reality. Now, it is a spiritual reality in our lives. The concept of baptism being linked to death. Where might Paul be getting this? Well... In fact, I think there is a place where Paul might be getting it. Baptism is linked with Jesus' death, and then by extension with Jesus' resurrection. I think it's quite likely that Paul here is picking up on the fact that Jesus himself spoke of his death as his coming baptism. Do you know that? Do you remember that in your gospel reading? There's two places where you find that in the gospels. You find it in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 and 39. And you find it in Luke chapter 12, verse 50. We could read either one. They're different, but we could read either one. But Luke chapter 12, verse 50 says this, Jesus speaking. I have a baptism to be baptized with, he says. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Jesus is talking about his coming death there his baptism is his death you can do studies on the the term of baptism in the classical greek and see that it it, it, it can mean this idea of being sub- submerged this idea of being under overwhelmed by something of being under the under the literally uh, boats can be described as having been baptized in ancient greek meaning they sunk like they're they're underwater you know they're they're gone they're dead <laughs> Our baptism is linked to that death, too. I think Paul's picking up on this. We die in some real sense. And now the sense in which that happens is that we die, Paul says, to sin. I think this is very much connected to the cross. At the cross, Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. When we trust him for that, we're forgiven our sins, but it's more than just that. We're in fact liberated from sin. The power of sin, the reign of sin that Paul was discussing there in chapter 5, that's broken in our lives. It dies in our lives. I like what John Chrysostom says in one of his homilies on Romans here. Chrysostom says, think about this, quote, baptism is the cross. He says, baptism is the cross. Baptism has become for us what the cross and tomb were for Christ, although not in the same way. Christ died and was buried in the flesh while we experience death and burial to sin. But then we're back at our initial point that you cannot separate the cross from the resurrection. Christ's death led to his resurrection life. In fact, look at verse 4 there again. Paul says, We were buried with him by baptism in order that we might walk in newness of life just as Christ was raised. There is a purpose in dying. There's a purpose in dying for Jesus. He talked about that as his baptism. There's a purpose in dying for us. There's a parallel in our lives, spiritually speaking at this point as well. There's a parallel not only with Jesus's death, but with his resurrection too. And it is according to Paul that we too walk in newness of life. There's a real change, brothers and sisters. We're brought into new life now, even as we anticipate the fullness of that life in the future. Look briefly at verses 5 and following. There's lots and lots that could be said here that won't be. (laughs) But just listen to these verses and track the parallels. That's what I'm emphasizing right now. Verse 5. For if we have been united with him in a death like his... We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. Verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. This is Paul explaining the nature of the death. Then verse 8, now if we have died with Christ we believe that we will also live with him. I just want you to see quite plainly how at every step here, the believer is seen to be in parallel with Christ in both death and resurrection. And baptism is the sign and seal of it all. Baptism is the symbolic reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection. You don't stay under the water. (laughs) Right, Tim? (laughs) You hope. You don't stay under the water. Yeah. It is the symbolic reenactment of Jesus' death and resurrection even as it is the bond that places us into Christ's death and resurrection. We experience newness of life now in the present even as we anticipate the full physical reality of resurrection in the future. Just as death meant the end to Jesus' earthly life and resurrection meant the beginning of Jesus' new life which I think is more or less what Paul's saying in verses 9 and 10 of our text he died once he died, you know once for all now he lives he lives for god death and life so these roman believers were to consider themselves dead to sin in their past lives and alive to the transforming reality of their new lives so that the final answer to paul's initial question are we to continue in sin that grace may abound is then stated in verse 11 no but rather verse 11 you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. It is by the instrument of Christ's death and resurrection that we too die and experience newness of life. We cannot continue living under the reign of sin. All of which probably sounds great. Sounds fantastic. I hope it does. I hope it sounds, I hope that sounds fantastic to you. But if you're like me, maybe you're not, you read all that. You've heard it before. You believe it's true. But you just can't help but feel like there's something missing here. There's something I'm not getting. There's something missing. You see the parallels between Christ's death and resurrection and our death and new life. I mean, that's as clear as could be. And our future full resurrection as well. We get that this will have implications for how we live. We'll come to that in a moment, a moment there. But I read all that. I read all that this week. I want you to I what I'm what I want to know having read all that I want to know something about the how Paul I mean how does that all work I mean it's amazing but how does this happen how is it that we actually die to sin and then walk in new life do you get what I'm asking I mean what's actually changing How is that happening? That's what I want to know. Any idea how to answer that? (laughs) And it's possible you'll think I'm making too much of this, but... Well, I think the answer is here in the text if we look closely at verse 4 again. Because there's a phrase here in verse 4 we haven't talked about yet. I think verse 4 is essentially the summary statement. Look at what Paul says, verse 4. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, he says, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father we too might walk in newness of life. <laughs> Notice the key instrumental phrase there, would you? I'm willing to bet you didn't even think about it when it was read earlier. We almost just glossed right over it. I glossed right over it the first five times I read this this week. Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, Paul says. That's important. Because the parallel is to us. Just as Christ was raised, we too might walk in newness of life. So, what does Paul mean when he says Christ was raised by the glory of the Father? What's the glory of the Father referring to? Do you know? Or do you have a guess? (laughs) I'm convinced that's the Holy Spirit. I'm convinced that when Paul says it was by the glory of the Father, Paul means it was by the Holy Spirit. Later in Romans chapter 8, verse 11, Paul will state specifically that it was the Father acting through his Spirit who raised up Christ, and that that same spirit of the one who raised Christ, Paul says, now dwells in us and will give life to our mortal bodies too. Romans 8 verse 11. If that's right, then how is it that we walk in newness of life now? Answer, it's by the power of the Spirit I think that the key to understanding Paul's whole argument here is to recognize that the death we die spiritually and the new life we begin to live spiritually, not physically yet, one day, those are real, those are made realities in our lives by the power of the Spirit. The Holy Spirit does something in us, in other words which begins to move us in a direction I cannot take fully in this sermon, but let me just say this. I think it is so important that when we talk about union with Christ, which, of course, Paul does here explicitly, I think it's so important we need to keep in mind that what we're actually talking about, in my view, is the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Spirit who is both the Spirit of the Father, as we've seen, and who is the Spirit of Christ. According to Romans 8, verse 9, other passages in the New Testament, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus and the Spirit of the Father. So the next question is, Christian, what's the Spirit doing in our lives? Well... For those of you who've been with us long enough to have gone through this, do you remember Galatians? I mean, Galatians 2 verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. Remember that? It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And in tears, I told you for weeks in Galatians that I think that's the Holy Spirit. Christ who lives in you is the presence of the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ but I say Paul says Galatians 5 verse 16 walk by the Spirit And you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. The desires of the spirit are against the flesh. The fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Christian, what's the spirit doing in your life? Do you remember this? The Spirit's doing what God always promised to do in the New Covenant. The Spirit's changing your heart. We've talked about this so much at Christ the King. It's the same thing, Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter. Paul goes back to Abraham in Galatians and connects the Spirit there. More recently for us, what does David pray in Psalm 51? Create in me a clean heart, O God. How's God going to do that? By his Spirit Take not your Holy Spirit from me, David says. So you know what I think is actually happening when we die to sin and walk in newness of life? I think the Holy Spirit of God is changing your hearts. I think the Holy Spirit of God is breaking the power of sin in your lives, giving you, to use the biblical language, new hearts that do what? What do hearts do? Hearts desire things. He's giving you new hearts that desire the things of God. We pray every week, write this law in our hearts, we pray. I think... That's what it means to be united with Christ in his death and resurrection. I think that that's what the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in fact, made possible. That's why Jesus said, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the reality Jesus was bringing about for us you know the passages in Ezekiel and Jeremiah related to the pouring out of the Spirit, changing our hearts in the new covenant. This is what Jesus is doing for us in the death and resurrection. It takes a whole lot longer to develop or you could just go listen to Galatians. Right? It was all there. But you can then begin to see, I hope, that that's why I think Paul can go where he goes in verse 12 of our chapter. Look at it as we close on this instruction. Verse 12 Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body, Paul says, to make you obey its passions. Let it not reign, Christian. Paul can say that to Christians. How can he say that? Can you simply choose to not let sin reign in your life? Well, yes, you can, actually, if you have the Holy Spirit. Do you believe that? Walk by the Spirit, Paul says, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You can translate the word passions there as desires. Desire is what controls the will. It's always a matter of the heart. Romans 1, verse 24. Do you remember how Paul says that God's judgment against sin includes handing people over to what? Handing them over to the desires of their hearts. That's what sin looks like when it's raining in your life. The only way you don't let sin rain in your body is that your heart's been changed somehow. Christian. It's Galatians all over again. Walk by the Spirit. The new life that Paul mentions in verse 4 of this text is the overflow of the new creation that the Spirit has worked in our hearts that is 100% linked to the death and resurrection of Jesus. No death and resurrection of Jesus, no presence of the Spirit in our lives. Or, it's the cross plus the Spirit, as we said probably 125 times in our study of Galatians. We just need to go now where Paul goes, which is here. That the key to living a life in which sin does not reign then is to remember what God has done. Verse 11 says, look at this, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God. That does not mean, if I'm right, trick yourself into thinking you're dead to sin and alive to God. That means bring your mind and your will into alignment with what is really the case. And I don't mean really the case externally, out there somewhere. I mean internally. I mean your heart's been changed, Christian. I mean the result is righteousness in our lives. Paul's saying, remember that this is the case. Think this way. Know yourself this way. Consider that this is the truth about yourself. Seize that reality as who you truly are so that when that direct engagement with temptation comes, you find you don't desire it. Right? Present your members to God as instruments for righteousness, Paul says, because that's what they actually are. You see, it's not playing pretend. That's what I want you to remember. This is not about playing pretend. This is about acting in accordance with what's really going on inside you by the power of the Holy Spirit. And if you need something this morning to remind you of that reality? What is the thing you should look to in your life? Where should you be at 2.30 this afternoon? (laughs) You should be watching the baptisms. You should be looking to your baptism You should be remembering it and i don't mean i don't that does not exclude those of you who were baptized as young ones as children (laughs) with our daughters they were baptized as, as young ones we we have pictures of that baptism we talk to them about that baptism they know who baptized them they know the significance of the faith that that was promised for them they get it remember your baptism Why? It is the testimony to this. Your new self, your new master, your new life, your new walk by the power of the Spirit. For, Paul concludes in verse 14, sin will have no dominion over you. Christian. Since you are not under law, but under grace. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Oh, man.